Hello and welcome to Queen V, the life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, the life of of Queen Victoria. BBC World Service Play of the Week An Evening with Queen Victoria with Prunella Scales as Queen Victoria. Osborne, 27th of December, 1900 Had only a pretty good night as I was much disturbed by the storm. It rained and blew so hard it was impossible to think of going out, so I did some signing. Though my eyes were so bad I could hardly see a word I wrote, I felt very low and sad. I now rest for a short while after luncheon, which is thought good for me, but loses time. Later, I dictated to Beatrice a letter for dear Vicky and then my journal to Lentian, which she has been writing for me since we came here. All my good people, my maids and Indian servants, are indefatigable and so anxious to do anything they can for me. They are all overworked. Had my supper of Benger's food, which is very soothing and nourishing. After supper, Beatrice read and played a little for me. I was able to be a little calmer and talk about the happy old days. The wind sets so strongly that we can't get the rooms above 50 to 52 degrees and so on, and it is bitterly cold. I love the cold. I like bright, brisk, frosty weather and dislike heat, particularly oppressive heat and feel ill by it. But Osborne in summer is really too lovely, charming and romantic and wild as Balmoral. The woods, which would be beautiful anywhere, we can walk through without being followed. How happy we were here. Never did I enjoy myself more and more peacefully than when I could be here with my beloved Albert. I am rather short for a queen, but I always sit up straight, which enables me to write without fatigue and appear taller than I am. I love to be employed and I hate to be idle. I often feel so conscious of saying stupid things in conversation and I often think I am very childish. I do feel how sadly deficient I am and how oversensitive and irritable and uncontrollable my temper is when I am annoyed and hurt. I am in a position which is so totally different from other people's. I am often I am so overdone, so vexed, and in such distress about my country, that that must be my excuse. I will daily pray for God's help to improve. My nature is too passionate, and my emotions are too fervent. I had led a very unhappy life as a child, always on pins and needles with the whole family, hardly on speaking terms, and I, a mere child between two fires, I had no scope for my very violent feelings of affection. Had no brothers and sisters to live with. Never had a father. From my unfortunate circumstances, was not on a comfortable footing with my mother. Say you are naughty. You make yourself very unhappy. No, Mama, not me, not myself, but you. My first memory was of crawling on a yellow carpet in Kensington Palace and being told that if I cried and was naughty, 
Uncle Sussex would hear and punish me. Wenn du ungezogen bist und weinst, dann wird der Duke sehr böse mit dir sein. For which reason I always screamed when I saw him. I had a great horror of bishops on account of their wigs and aprons. I remember being very cross and screaming dreadfully and having to wear for a time flannel next to my skin. Leedson, my governess, said she had never seen such a passionate and naughty child as I was. Yes, she has been good this morning. But yesterday there was a little storm. No, two storms. One at dressing and one at washing. Dear good Leedson, she took such care of me. She never, for the thirteen years she was my governess, once left me. My education began when I was approaching five. I was not fond of learning as a little child, but I was fond of music. You must practice like everybody else. There, you see, there is no must about it. This book Mama gave me that I might write my journal in it. 31st July, 1832. I woke at seven and got up at eight. At ten minutes to nine, we breakfasted. At half past nine came Mr. T. Griffiths to lecture on physics. The plan of the lecture was introductory, objects of chemistry, viz. The investigation of every substance in nature, importance of heat, repulsion, exhibited in various ways, national weights and measures, defect of wheel carriages, and removal of Great Stone of St. Petersburg. At twelve we went out riding in the park. Mama's little dog, a beautiful spaniel of King Charles's breed, called Dash, came with us. It was a delightful ride. We cantered a good deal. Sweet little Rosie went at an enormous rate. She literally flew. And we returned home to Kensington Palace at ten minutes to one. At a quarter past seven, we went with Lady Conroy and Litson, as usual, to the opera. I am a terribly modern person. My operatic and terpsichorean feelings are pretty strong. It was Rossini's opera of Otello in three acts. The characters were Desdemona, Mademoiselle Grisi, who looked beautiful and sung most exquisitely. She personates the meek and ill-fated Desdemona in a perfect and touching manner. Elmiro, a Venetian patrician and father to Desdemona, Signor Lablache, who sang and acted beautifully. When Otello comes on and declares Desdemona to be his wife, and Elmiro in his rage exclaims, Empiati maledico, which Lablache did in a manner most splendid, while Desdemona falls at his feet, it was encored. It was a beautiful opera, and I was very much amused. Sunday, 10th of April, 1836. Read to Leitzen part of the directions and advices which dearest Uncle Leopold, King of the Belgians, has written down. Dear Uncle Leopold is so clever and governs Belgium so beautifully that he is a model for every sovereign. Uncle tells me that Belgium is quite a pattern for its organisation, industry and prosperity. The finances are in the greatest perfection, says... Uncle Leopold. That dearest of uncles, he is indeed il mio secondo padre, or rather solo padre, for he is like my real father, as I have none. Saturday, 21st of May. My dearest beloved uncle, thank you, my beloved uncle, for the happiness you have contributed to give me in the persons of my cousins Ernest and Albert. Ernest is my favourite, although Albert is much handsomer and cleverer too. Ernest will be 18 years old on the 21st of June and Albert 17 on the 26th of August. They speak English very well and I speak it with them. They are both exceedingly fond of music and Albert has written some beautiful songs. Wenn dich 
doch auf Erdscherflur, find ich doch die Liebe nur. If only someone would light the path of love and show me the way. Find ich doch auf Wednesday, 24th of May, 1837. Today is my 18th birthday. How old. And yet how far I am from being what I should be. I shall from this day strive to become less trifling and more fit for what, if heaven wills it, I'm someday to be. At half past three we drove out. The parks and streets were crowded all day, as though something very extraordinary had happened. The news of the king are so bad that all my lessons save the deans are put off, and we see nobody. A letter from Uncle Leopold. My dearest love. They seem to think the king is dying. The moment you get official communication, you will entrust Lord Melbourne with the office of retaining the present administration as your ministers. Monday, the 19th of June, 1837. I have just heard that my poor uncle the king was so ill that he could hardly live through the day. I received a very kind message from the poor queen. Tuesday, the 20th of June, 1837. I was awoke at six o'clock by Mamma, who told me that the Archbishop of Canterbury and Lord Cunningham were here and wished to see me. I got out of bed and went into my sitting room, only in my dressing gown, and alone, and saw them. Lord Cunningham, the Lord Chamberlain, then acquainted me that my poor uncle the King was no more, and had expired at twelve minutes past two this morning. And consequently, that I am Queen. Thursday, the 28th of June, 1838. I was awoke at four o'clock by the guns in the park and could not get much sleep afterwards on account of the people, bands, etc., etc. Got up at seven, feeling strong and well. At ten, I got into the state coach and we began our progress. It was a fine day, and the crowds of people exceeded what I have ever seen, and I really cannot say how proud I am to be the queen of such a nation. I reached the abbey amidst deafening cheers at a little after half past eleven. There I found my eight train bearers, and after putting on my mantle, and the young ladies having properly got hold of it, the procession began. The Bishop of Durham stood on the side near me, but he was, as Lord Melbourne said, remarkably maladroit and could never tell me what was to take place. At the beginning of the anthem, I retired and put on the super tunica of cloth of gold. I also took off my circlet of diamonds and then proceeded bareheaded into the abbey. I was then seated upon St. Edward's chair where the dalmatic robe was clasped round me by the Lord Chamberlain, then followed all the various things, and last of those things, the crown being placed upon my head. The shouting, which was very great, the drums, the trumpets, the firing of the guns, all at the same instant, rendered the spectacle most imposing. The homage of all the bishops, then my uncles, and lastly of all the peers, was very fine. Poor old Lord Roll who is 82 and dreadfully infirm, in attempting to ascend the steps, fell and <laughs> rolled quite down, but was not the least hurt. When he attempted to reascend them, I got up and advanced to the end of the steps in order to prevent another fall. I then repaired to St. Edward's Chapel, as it is called, but which was, as Lord Melvin said, more unlike a chapel than anything I have ever seen for what was called an altar, was covered with sandwiches, bottles of wine, 
etc. The Archbishop came in and ought to have delivered the orb to me, but I had already got it. And he, as usual, was so confused and puzzled and knew nothing and went away. The procession being formed, I replaced my crown, which I had taken off for a few minutes, took the orb in my left hand and the scepter in my right, and thus, loaded, proceeded through the abbey, which resounded with cheers. I shall ever remember this day as the proudest of my life. I shall never forget this first summer of my reign. It was the pleasantest summer I have ever passed. I always have a very great deal to do. I have so many communications from the ministers and from me to them and get so many papers to sign every day. But for want of time and space, I do not write these things down. I delight in this work. I have seen Lord Melbourne a great deal, every day. I have seen him in my closet for political affairs. I have ridden out with him. I have sat near him constantly at and after dinner and talked about all sorts of things. I have great confidence in him. I observed to Lord Melbourne, there are not many good preachers to be found. There are not many very good anything. Which is very true. I asked Lord Melbourne how he liked my dress. It does very well. He has very good taste, I think. I lamented on my being so short. Everyone grows but me. I think you are grown. Spoke of Lady Ashley, who Lord Melbourne says is decided in her politics. Though not violent. She is a Tory. Lord Melbourne says she doesn't talk about it much. I asked how she came to be a Tory and who could have made her so. A nurse, I think. People generally get their ideas in that way. Wednesday the 7th of August. In the afternoon came Lord Melbourne. I asked if he wasn't tired. He only got to bed at five, having had his dinner after the debate when he got in at four. That is very bad. Must eat. You should eat before you go to the house. I've no appetite before a debate. What did you have for dinner this morning at four, Lord Melbourne? A pike, chicken, peas, a, a raspberry tart, and a bottle of Madeira. Which quite surprised me. Thursday, the 24th of May, 1838. I this day enter my 20th year, which I think very old. At half past ten, the doors were opened, and I went through the saloon into the ballroom. I never heard anything so beautiful as Strauss's band. They played my favourite quadrille called Le Gai Loisir, which made me quite frantic. I only dance quadrilles. In my station, I cannot valse or gallop. I danced with the Grand Duke of Russia. I really am quite in love with the Grand Duke. He is a dear, delightful young man. He is so very strong, and he whisked me round, which was very pleasant. I danced every quadrille. I did not leave the ballroom until ten minutes past four. The sun shining, and could not sleep until five. It was a lovely ball, so gay, so nice, and we were all so merry. I really love this amiable and dear young man who has such a sweet smile. I talked to Lord Melbourne. These quadrilles are dangerous if they produce this effect on you. Anyway, I don't think the Grand Duke looked well. He looked livid. I said, all this excitement does me good. Talked of my liking to live with young people, for that I felt that I was young, which I really often forget living so much with people older than myself. And talked to Lord M of his being tired. And I said to him that he mustn't go to sleep before so many people, for that he generally snored. That proclaims it too much. With which I quite agreed. Talked of my cousins Ernest and Albert coming, which we agreed would create observation. Uh, now, ma'am, for this other matter. I felt terrified, foolishly, too silly to be frightened in talking to him. I said that I dreaded the thought of marrying. I said, why had I to marry at all for three or four years? 
that I thought it was ten to one I shouldn't agree with anybody that I was so used to having my own way, by having no great wish to see Albert, as the whole subject was an odious one and one which I hated to decide upon. I said I wished, if possible, never to marry. Oh, I don't know about that. Thursday, the 10th of October, 1839. As we were returning along the new walk, one of my pages came running with a letter from Uncle Leopold, saying my cousins would be here very soon. At half-past seven, I went to the top of the staircase and received my two dear cousins, Ernest and Albert, whom I found grown and changed and embellished. It was with some emotion that I beheld Albert, who is beautiful. I embraced them both and presented them to Lord Melbourne. I sat on the sofa, Lord Melbourne sitting near me and Albert opposite. Albert really is quite charming and so excessively handsome. Such beautiful blue eyes, an exquisite nose, such a pretty mouth with delicate moustaches and slight, but very slight, whiskers. A beautiful figure, broad in the shoulders and a fine waist. I said to Lord M that I had made up my mind about marrying dearest Albert. You have? You'll be much more comfortable. Then I asked if I hadn't better tell Albert of my decision soon, in which Lord M agreed. How? I asked, for in general such things are done the other way, which made Lord M laugh. Thursday, the 15th of October, 1839. At about half past twelve, I sent for Albert. He came to the closet where I was alone, and after a few minutes I said to him, that he must be aware of why I wished him to come here, and that it would make me too happy if he would consent to what I wished, to marry me. We embraced each other. I told him I was quite unworthy of him. He said he would be very happy... Das Leben mit dir zuzubringen. He was so kind and seemed so happy that I really felt that it was the happiest moment in my life. I told him it was a great sacrifice, which he wouldn't allow... Also, that the wedding was to be as early as the beginning of February. Monday, the 10th of February, 1840. The ceremony was very imposing and fine and simple, and I think ought to make an everlasting impression on everyone who promises at the altar to keep what he or she promises. Dearest Albert repeated everything very distinctly. I, Francis Charles... Augustus Albert Emmanuel, take thee, Alexandrina Victoria, take thee, Alexandrina Victoria. I felt so happy when the ring was put on and by Albert. As soon as the service was over, the procession returned as it came, with the exception that my beloved Albert led me out. The applause was very great as we came through. We then returned to Buckingham Palace. Albert and I drank a glass of wine with Lord Melbourne, who seemed much affected by the whole and so much touched in speaking of me and my affairs. I took his hand and pressed it and thanked him for all his kindness. I'm sure that none of your friends are so fond of you as I am. I believe not. God bless you, ma'am. I pressed his hand once more and he gave me such a kind look. Then dearest Albert fetched me downstairs, where we took leave of Mama and drove off at near four o'clock. I and Albert, alone. I think people marry far too much. When I think of a merry, happy, free young girl and look at the ailing, aching state a young wife is generally doomed to. It always sticks in my throat. Men are far too selfish. One has a strong wish to give a husband a good, strong ducking. Men never think, or at least seldom think, what their poor slaves go through. What humiliation to the delicate feelings of a poor woman, especially with those nasty doctors. If I had had a year of happy enjoyment with dearest Albert to myself, how thankful I should have been. 
but I was in for it at once. I had nine times to bear with those enormities, and furious I was. admirer of babies. An ugly baby is a very nasty object, and the prettiest is dreadful when undressed, with their big bodies, little limbs, and their terrible frog-like action. There are exceptions. I admire pretty ones, especially peasant children. Alice and Beatrice were very pretty from the first. Vicky also rather so. Leopold and Bertie too frightful. I can't bear children being idolised or made too great an object of, or having numbers of them about me making a great noise. They are, I suppose, a great blessing, brighten one's life. It would be very sad not to have them. But what are children compared to a husband? I grudged you children being always there. I longed to be alone with Papa. The wardrobe maid wakes us at seven o'clock. Good morning, Your Majesty. Good morning, Your Royal Highness. Albert always gets up at once. He then goes to his sitting room and writes letters, reads, etc. And a little after eight, sometimes a little sooner or later, he comes in to tell me to get up. Es ist Zeit. Steh auf. And constantly he brings me in his letters in English to read through. Leser recht aufmerksam. Und sage, wenn irgendein Fehler da ist. And so I do. He is usually ready before me. My angel always wears the blue ribbon of the Order of the Garter under his waistcoat, which looks so nice. Albert grows daily fonder and fonder of politics and business and is so wonderfully fit for both. And I grow to dislike them more and more. Really, when one is happy and blessed in one's home life as I am, Politics, provided my country is safe, must take only a second place. We women, if we are to be good women, feminine and amiable and domestic, are not fitted to reign. First of May, 1851. The greatest day in our history. The exhibition is the most beautiful and imposing and touching spectacle ever seen, the triumph of my beloved Albert. Up to the last hour, the difficulties and opposition were immense, but his temper, patience and energy surmounts all. As we neared the Crystal Palace, the sun gleamed upon the gigantic edifice upon which the flags of every nation were flying. The vastness of the building with all its decorations and exhibits the myriads of people filling the galleries and seats gave a sensation I shall never forget. Every face was smiling, and many even had tears in their eyes. And my beloved husband, the creator of the great Peace Festival, uniting the industry and art of all nations of the earth, dearest Albert's name is forever immortalized. from the Journal of Our Life in the Highlands from 1848 to 1861 by Queen Victoria. We arrived at Balmoral at a quarter to three. It's a pretty little castle in the old Scottish style. 
There is a picturesque tower and garden in front and the hills rise all around. To the left you look towards the beautiful hills surrounding Loch Nagar and to the right towards Ballater, to the glen along which the Dee winds with beautiful wooded hills which remind us very much of the Thüringerwald. Monday, 11th of October. This day has been a very happy, lucky and memorable one. At 11 o'clock we started out for the top of Great Gowan to see the can built which was to commemorate our taking possession of this dear place. We set off with the children, ladies, gentlemen and a few of the servants. The ponies carried the luncheon baskets. I was on Victoria, being led by Brown. Albert took a Gaelic lesson during the climb, asking MacDonald, who speaks with great purity, many words. It is a very difficult language. Brown observed to me in simple Highland phrase, It's very pleasant to walk with a person who's always content. <coughs> Everyone on the estate says there was never so kind a master. We reached the highest point of Craig Gowan, where were assembled all the servants and tenants with their wives and children and old relations. I then placed the first stone, after which Albert laid one, then all the children according to their ages. Mr. and Mrs. Anderson were there, Mackay played, and whiskey was given to all. It took, I am sure, an hour building, and whilst it was going on, some merry reels were danced on a stone opposite. All the old people, even the gardener's wife from Corby Hall near Abergeldy, danced, and many of the children, Mary Simons and Lizzie Stewart especially, danced so nicely. It was a gay, pretty and touching sight, and I felt almost inclined to cry. The view was so beautiful over the dear hills, the day so fine, the whole so gemütlich. We returned home by Loch Calita. The mountains were beautifully lit up with those very blue shades upon them like the bloom on a plum. We got off to take a look at the wonderful panorama which lay stretched out before us. We looked at Fifeshire and the country between Perth and Stirling, the Lomond Hills. We came down by the Mount Ige, and if we had been a little earlier, Albert might have got a stag. The moon rose and shone most beautifully, and we returned at twenty minutes to seven o'clock, much pleased and interested with this delightful expedition. Alas, I fear our last great one. It was our last one. Dearest child, my greatest of all anxieties is that dearest Papa works too hard, wears himself out by all he does. Those endless telegrams coming in every hour. He had one of his stomach attacks yesterday, but today he is much better and is playing Mendelssohn as usual on the piano before dinner. You know, my dearest child, that I never admit any other wife can be as happy as I am. I maintain Papa is unlike anyone who lives, or ever lived, or will live. I owe everything to him. He is my father, my protector, my guide and advisor in all and everything. My mother, I might almost say, as well as my husband. I do not cling to life. You do, but I set no store by it. I should be quite ready to die tomorrow. I suppose no one ever was so completely altered and changed in every way as I was by dearest Albert's blessed influence. And when he is away, I feel quite paralyzed. I am sure if I had a severe illness, I should give up at once. I should not struggle for life. How am I alive after witnessing what I have done? 
Oh, I who pray daily that we die together and I never survive him. I who felt when in those blessed arms clasped and held tight in the sacred hours at night, when the world seemed only to be ourselves, that nothing could part us. At night you welcome me in my dreams. With cries I throw myself at your feet. You look at me sadly and shake your head while tears flow. branch of cypress. I awake and the branch has vanished and I have forgotten the word. My life as a happy one is ended. The world is gone for me. If I must live on, it is henceforth for our poor fatherless children, for my unhappy country which has lost all in losing him, and in only doing what I know and feel he would wish, for he is near me. His spirit will guide and inspire me. But, oh, to be cut off in the prime of life is too awful, too cruel. I am anxious to repeat one thing, and that one is my firm resolve, my irrevocable decision, viz, that his wishes, his plans about everything, his views about everything are to be my law. And no human power will make me swerve from what he decided and wished. And I am also determined that no one person, may he be ever so good, ever so devoted among my servants, is to lead or guide or dictate to me. There is no more pleasure for you, poor queen. And I feel for you. But what can I do for you? Oh, I could die for you. I have not, I think, told you that I have taken good John Brown entirely and permanently as my personal servant for out of doors. He comes to my room after breakfast and luncheon to get his orders, and everything is always right. And I feel I have always in the house a good, devoted soul whose only object is my service, and God knows how much I want to be taken care of. He is indeed one in a thousand, for he has feelings and qualities which the highest prince might be proud of. You must see a lot of grand folks in London, John. Me and the Queen pays nae attention to them. There is nothing like the Highlanders. No, nothing. They might be trusted with all the secrets of the universe. Kingsley, who preached here at Balmoral yesterday, said that the English peasants had not a grain of poetry in their nature whereas the Scotch are full of it. How true that is. And that is what gives them such a charm and makes the Highlanders so high-bred. One does require that to lift us above the heavy clay which clogs our souls. Dr. MacLeod told me of a poor old Scotch woman who had lost her husband and most, if not all, her children and said to him, When my good man went, it made such a hole that all the others went through it. So it is with me. But like all Scotch sayings, 
It is so simple and true. The sun is sunk in the west. All creatures return to rest. While here I sit, all soul beset with sorrow, grief, and woe. And it's all fickle fortune, oh. Oh, whither, oh, whither shall I turn? All friendless, forsaken, forlorn. For in this world rest or peace The Times, the 1st of April, 1864. Her Majesty's loyal subjects will be very pleased to hear that their sovereign is about to break her protracted seclusion. Various announcements encourage the hope that not only will Buckingham Palace resume its place in the world of life, but that Her Majesty herself will appear as its mistress. To the editor of the Times. An erroneous idea seems generally to prevail and has latterly found frequent expression in the newspapers that the Queen is about to resume the place in society which she occupied before her great affliction. The Queen will, however, do what she can, in the manner least trying to her health, strength and spirits, to meet the loyal wishes of her subjects, to afford that support and countenance to society and to give that encouragement to trade which is desired of her. More the Queen cannot do, and more the kindness and good feeling of her people will surely not exact from her. The Queen to Lord John Russell. The Queen must say that she does feel very bitterly the want of feeling of those who ask the Queen to go to open Parliament. That the public should wish to see her, she fully understands. But to long to witness the spectacle of a poor, broken-hearted widow, nervous and shrinking, dragged in deep mourning, in state, as a show, to be gazed at without delicacy of feeling is a thing she cannot understand. She will do it this time, as she promises. But she owns she resents the unfeelingness of those who have clamoured for it. Windsor Castle, 6th of February, 1866. Terribly agitated and nervous. At half past ten, left Windsor for London. Great crowds out. It was a fearful moment for me when I entered the carriage, and I had great difficulty in repressing my tears. Our two affectionate girls, Lenchian and Louise, were a true help and support to me, and they so thoroughly realised all I was going through. When I entered the House of Commons, which was very full, I felt as if I should faint. All was silent, and all eyes fixed upon me. And there I sat, alone. Gamble <coughs> 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 lozenges. I always have them near, wherever I go, since they were first recommended to me by Sir C. Locke, <coughs> when I was so restless before Vicky was born. Taking one in your mouth when you can't sleep does real good, and at all times. This box was given to me by Mr. Disraeli. On one side is a heart transfixed by an arrow, and on the other side, the word fidelitaire. Is it not touching? When one's beloved husband is gone, one's children are married, one feels that a friend who can devote himself 
or herself entirely to you is the one thing you do require to help you on, to sympathize entirely with you. Mr. Disraeli, alias Dizzy, Lord Beaconsfield. It was a proud thing for Mr. Disraeli to become Prime Minister, a man risen from the people. His father was a mere man of letters. Mr. Disraeli was thoroughly Jewish-looking, a livid complexion, dark eyes and eyebrows, and black ringlets. His expression was very disagreeable, but I did not find him so to talk to. He thanked me for the gift of my book, Leaves from the Journals of Our Life in the Highlands. There is a freshness and fragrance about the book, like the heather amid which it was written. We authors, ma'am. We authors. <laughs> he certainly showed more consideration for my comfort than any preceding minister since Sir Robert Peel and Lord Aberdeen. He repeatedly said whatever I wished should be done. Mr. Gladstone would have liked to govern me as Bismarck governed the German Empire. I always felt in his manner an overbearing obstinacy and imperiousness which I never experienced from anyone else and which I found most disagreeable. The harm the liberals have done the country is irreparable and I can never forget it. Mr. Disraeli had a way when we differed of saying... Dear madam, so persuasively, and putting his head on one side. When I left the dining room after sitting next to Mr. Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. But after sitting next to Mr. Disraeli, I thought I was the cleverest woman in England. His language was very flowery. <laughs> Mr. Disraeli to Queen Victoria on her 56th birthday. For today, which is given to my country, a sovereign whose reign, it is my hope and ambition, may rank with that of Elizabeth, has also given to me, her humble but chosen servant, a mistress whom to serve is to love. It was full of poetry, romance and chivalry. I never had such letters in my life. Mr. Disraeli had very large ideas and very lofty views. He wanted me to have a real throne. I am Empress, and in conversation I am sometimes called the Empress of India. Why have I never officially assumed this title? I feel I ought to and wish to have preliminary inquiries made. There is a general feeling that India should belong to me, all, all to be mine. I have such a longing to go to India. Han, please bring me my photograph album. album <laughs> Mujhe mere tasweeran ka album dijiye. Bohat achcha. Shukriya. I am learning a few words of Hindustani from the Munshi to speak to my Indian servants. It is of great interest to me, both for the language and the people. Abdul is a very strict master and is a perfect gentleman. Album, welcome, Mujama. Shukriya. My first great-grandchild, quite an event. Our children have, alas, such swarms of children. I delight in the idea of being a grandmama, gan-gan, head of all the family. Dear little things, I like to see them so at home with me. One at a time is much the best. David is a most attractive little boy. He always tries to pull me out of my chair, saying, Get up, Gan Gan! And then to one of the Indian servants, Man, 
pull it, which makes us laugh very much. <laughs> there is Charlotte. Ugliest housemaid name I ever knew. How could Vicky, with her good taste and poetical romantic nature, be so unecstatic? I had always hoped that Vicky's firstborn would be called Victoria, so that there might be four generations of Victoria. I love my poor old name. It was my precious mother's name. Alice's daughter is called Victoria Alberta Elizabeth Matilda Marie. My beloved Alice, gone forever from this world, which is not, thank God, our permanent home. Bertie is much improved. Handsome, I cannot think him, with that painfully small narrow head, those immense features and total want of chin, but he is full of amiable qualities that it makes one forget and overlook much that one would wish different. I am sure that no heir apparent ever was so nice and unpretending as dear Bertie is. He is my caricature. That is the misfortune. Dear Alexandra, smallest head ever seen. With Bertie's small, empty brain, I dread very much sometimes for the children. <laughs> Darling little Aleki, my granddaughter. Tsarina of Russia. The position is an anxiety. Wilhelm, my eldest grandson. I loved William so dearly and would have done anything for the darling child. I have always been very intimate with him. And to pretend that he is to be treated in private as well as in public as his imperial majesty of Prussia is perfect madness. If he has such notions, he better never come here. That terrible Prussian pride and ambition which grieved dear Papa so much. Pride and ambition are not only very wrong in themselves... They are in every way unworthy of great minds and great nations. Goodness is the first thing, the first conductor of happiness, the rarest thing to be found, and in the long run the only one that never loses its value. <laughs> All these letters... Papers, dispatches, so much to do, and my troublesome eyes make everything much more difficult. I have not yet succeeded in getting spectacles to suit. I, who always hated business, have now nothing but that. My life is made up of work, work, work. But I will, I will do my duty. What is this now? The Gondoliers by Mr. W.S. Gilbert and Sir Arthur Sullivan performed by the Doily Cart Company in the presence of Her Majesty Queen Victoria in the Waterloo Gallery at Windsor Castle 6th of March 1891. <laughs> Shalooms and shalooms 
or receive with ceremonial and state an interesting eastern potentate after that we generally go dress our private valley it's a rather nervous duty he's a touchy little man write some letters literary for our private secretary he is shaky in his spelling so we help him if we can then in view of craving dinner, we go down and order dinner. Then we polish the regalia and the coronation plate. Spend an hour in titivating all our gentlemen in waiting, or we run on little errands for the ministers of state. Oh, philosophers may sing of the troubles of a king, but of pleasures there are many and of worries there are none. And the culminating pleasure that we treasure beyond measure is the gratifying feeling that our duty has been done. The 21st of June, 1897. The 10th anniversary of my 50 years' jubilee. I have now reigned longer than any English sovereign. No one ever, I believe, has met with such an ovation as was given to me passing through those six miles of streets. The crowds were quite indescribable, and their enthusiasm truly marvellous and deeply touching. Cheering was quite deafening, and every face seemed filled with real joy. We passed down Cambridge Terrace, under a lovely arch bearing the motto, Our Hearts Thy Throne. The streets were beautifully decorated, also the balconies of the houses with flowers, flags and draperies of every hue. The streets, the windows, the roofs of the houses where one mass of beaming faces and the cheers never ceased. As we neared St Paul's, the procession was often stopped and the crowds broke out into singing God Save the Queen. Before leaving, I touched an electric button by which I started a message which was telegraphed throughout the whole empire. It was the following. From my heart, I thank my beloved people. May God bless them. At this time, the sun burst out. How kind they are to me. How kind they are. What have I done to be so loved and liked? If they only knew me as I am. Osborne, January the 13th, 1901. Had a fair night, but was a little wakeful. Got up earlier and had some milk. Out before one in the garden chair. Lenchian and Beatrice going out with me. Rested when I came in and at 5.30 went down to the drawing-room where a short service was held by Mr. Clement Smith, who performed it so well, and it was a great comfort to me. Rested again afterwards, then did some signing and dictated to Lenchen. In An Evening with Queen Victoria, you heard Prunella Scales as the Queen. Other parts were played by Gavin Campbell, Adrian Egan, Judy Franklin, Garrard Green and Wendy Murray. The songs were sung by Ian Partridge with Richard Burnett at the piano. Sound balance was by Adrian Revel. The programme was devised and compiled by Katrina Hendry. 
An Evening with Queen Victoria was a BBC World Service drama production directed by Dickon Reed. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, The Life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link. Thank you and have a great day.